Hello everyone and welcome to Changing Conversations with me, Billy Burke. And me, Sarah Philp. We're really glad you've joined us on this podcast. This podcast is all about changing conversation. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. We come alive when we talk about what's important to us and it's this that has the potential to guide us into new and different ways of being and offer the potential for great things. In this podcast, we want to explore the big questions and the small questions. It's a place for thinking and conversations that hold the potential for change. You will hear from us as well as some of our guests. We would love to hear from you and for you to get involved. You can also follow us on Twitter at Changing Conversations. In this episode, I chat with Paul Bloomberg from the Core Collaborative and Vivette Jukes, who is co-author of their recent new book. Paul always brings energy and in this conversation, it's no different. Paul and Vivette share their experiences, insight and reflections on their work around how we bring equity work to learning and teaching. Listening is a bit of a theme throughout and I really encourage you to listen deeply and with an honest openness. Paul Vivette, it's lovely to see you today, this afternoon, morning with you, I think. How are you both? Paul, how are you, first of all? Well, I'm doing good today. I'm in Palm Springs, and it, we have had this really weird weather where it's been raining, and we, we even got snow, um, and it's usually 75 and 80, but today, the sun's out, so I'm in a really good place. <laughs> So really, you just described Scottish weather to me, minus the sun. So <laughs> I was kind of thinking that as I was bragging about the sun, that yeah. I might be rubbing it in your face inadvertently. So I'm sorry, but it's sunny. Yeah. Here. <laughs> we're, we're recording this on uh, spring equinox, so it should be spring-like today. But when I look outside my window, it's really not at all spring-like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the weather didn't get the same memo as the rest of us, but never mind. Yeah, that, that's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> that crazy global warming here too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Vivette, it's great that you're able to to join us as well today. Where, whereabouts are you and how are you? I'm so happy to join you today. You don't even know. I'm in Queens, New York right now. Um, it's actually really sunny and it was unseasonably cold yesterday. So definitely global warming in full effect but I'm grateful for the sun and the warmth and to be outside in just my blazer <laughs> instead of having a big thick down coat on you know so how am I doing I'm just grateful honestly I'm just trying to really practice gratitude there's so many things I could say that are not well but I'm just going to choose to focus on what is well so I'm grateful Good. see why we're friends <laughs> <laughs> I see why you're friends and I I am reminded um, of the energy and enthusiasm that you in particular bring, Paul, which I have to say is a very welcome on this Monday afternoon. <laughs> Thank you. I'll try to bring it. <laughs> oh, you already have. <laughs> so um, it's great to have the opportunity to chat about your new book, which is called Amplifying Student Voice Through Culturally Responsive and Sustaining Assessment. It's a snappy title and, and a snappy book. You've just showed it to me. It's incredibly thick. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, we realized as we started writing it that no one person could ever speak to what we really wanted to say. And we also realized that it seems kind of interesting in the equity space, folks kind of do work on the equity side. And then you have even instruction and assessment and they're over here. And we are like, you know, how do we bring these things together? together so the author team just kind of grew and grew and grew and I just want to make sure we acknowledge all of the other authors the partner schools um all the folks that endorsed the book because it certainly took a village a few years to um, put this together and I'm just really grateful to be here yeah and and I think as you've just said I think what you what you're doing with with the book and actually in all of your work is quite unique in terms of bringing two things together marrying yeah. We don't do enough of that. Um, and I suppose I'm curious before we dive into some questions around what it's all about, you know, how, given that not many people really seem to do that, how do you find kind of operating and learning in that space? I don't know. I think that that, I mean, I think you can also answer this. I think we can't live in these silos. Yeah. anymore so I think for me personally it's not even a choice it's like you know I think we were doing some really wonderful equity work and I know um, my colleagues John and Floyd they still are I think I've always been searching in our community the core collaborative community has been searching on how do we infuse that work in everything we do yeah. because the stakes are so high mm -hmm. right and so I think it really isn't for me, a choice and how do you make assessment or instruction more culturally responsive? I think being a gay man, I think that plays a lot into it, but also understanding that I'm a part of the dominant culture too. I'm a white gay gay man. And, you know, and I have two adopted sons, one son who's a person of color. And so I think for me, it's there's really no choice in to bring things that we know work together to kind of think about them as one mm -hmm. instead of thinking about them in pieces. I don't know, Vivette, what about for you? I think the whole process really and what makes uh, the core collaborative so unique and having consulted with other organizations and done a lot of work in the educational space, what makes the core collaborative unique is that they really live out the name of their organization, the core of the being of the entity is collaboration and it's welcomed. Whereas in other spaces, there can be a div divisive nature or really saying that they want collaboration, but they really only want to hear the voices of the top three people in the org, right? But here, it's really what you bring to this organization is what they value. And so it becomes really easy to show up as your authentic self and just bring the inherent gifts that you have. And Paul in particular has a way of identifying the gifts that others have. I know for me, he's done that where there have been times, even in the writing of this book, where I doubted myself as much as I'm a writer and an English teacher and all these titles. But at my core, there was this like, this imposter syndrome is this really happening and I would never really have said that 
in a space outside of this, but I was able to, and Paul was able to, and not just Paul, all of the writers, everyone here in a true collaborative fashion, like really uplift me and speak to my core. Like, no, you are these things and we will help you and let's sit down and write together. And, you know, this is a really beautiful process because you're seeing the finished product Sarah but there's so much that, that goes into it you know and it's just and even me I didn't know I've never written a book before been a part co-author the book yeah. the process the process was just really collaborative so at their core that's what they're about yeah and I'm curious I didn't pay her for that <laughs> nope. They made me cry a little bit because <laughs> we worked really hard for that to be. Yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> like, no, no. If you have to train your own ego too, you know, you have to realize your own power and privilege and recognize that other people have these beautiful gifts and they're doubting themselves too. And you're watching your own self and making sure you're taking care of others it's like a dance that i don't think any of us were really maybe really ready for but it was it was a beautiful process nonetheless yeah. and 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 showing up as i am a black woman so i'm always really cautious about being tokenized mm. right do you just want me involved in this project because you need to have a black face and that black voice or is my voice really valued here and you know I've never felt tokenized and I think that is another gift and another part of this organization that really makes them different you know in a good way from others it's refreshing yeah. you know like we have so much in common we're human beings but we all have our lived experiences that, you know, that's the lens that we look through life through, we view assessments, we just view everything with. Yeah. And so often that voice I found has been stifled or they only, or they try to pigeonhole or make you the angry black woman or make you this like, no, I just want to be the vet. <laughs> and I just want to talk about my experiences. And I happen to be a black woman also and all these other things, right? But I'm not just that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. And I guess what you've kind of described there is that real genuine culture of belonging, which I know is one of the the kind of the part of the mission of the core collaborative. And so I suppose the book, the title of the book maybe kind of gives the answer away. But how does this book really align and live out that mission for you as an organization? Well, I think what we've learned even more over the last three to five years is to have to amplify voice also means that we have to learn how to listen. <laughs> so I think that maybe now that I think maybe the title should have changed, but I think just as important as it is to amplify our voice, I think you'll see as you read the book or the threads through the book is that that means we have to really actively listen and be present, you know, with our heart, with our mind, um, and be present in that moment and not waiting to jump in and say what we think, but to truly listen because knowledge lives there. And I think for us to understand that our lived experience is a source of knowledge that we need to honor 
not dismissed and to understand that um, our lived experience as a source of knowledge is a place to build knowledge from. Mm -hmm. I think that is what we've really always been about. I think in the next version of Impact Teams, I think we're going to see that that part of learning that sometimes we don't do a good job at explaining or describing that's more emotional and more social. I think that there's more of an emphasis in this text than there's ever been. And I see that happening in all of the work we do. You know, I think Babette is pretty new. We met on, she was working for the National Parent Union and I was on the board and we started collaborating in that sense that then we just met and we're like, oh man, we have to find a way to partner to, with one another because we just knew whatever we could do together would be more beautiful than if we did it on our own. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I don't know, I think that answers your question. What do you think of that? I absolutely, and I would just add that um, how this book really lives out the essence of our core values as an organization is because it's doing what most other books are not about. They're about elevating the voices of teachers, the voices of admin, the voices of other stakeholders in education, but or in assessments especially, but how often are we hearing about the primary stakeholders in education from them and really like elevating? Well, they're the learner. They're the one who are the receivers of all of this knowledge that we have and these, you know, um, assessments that we're creating, but how often are we really queuing into them and looking at what they bring to the table as an asset instead of looking at it as a deficit. I think that's the really big takeaway for me, that it's from an asset-based lens, not only the learner, the learner's culture, which involves their community, their family. That's not that's not really included in a sense. It's really a nuanced way of thinking. People talk about it a lot or they say they're doing it, but not really, yeah. not really. Um, and I guess what's interesting for me is I can see you both as, as we're talking. Um, and our, of course our listeners will just be hearing your voices, but I can see Vivette, your face lights up when you're talking about that. And when you talk about that relationship and connection that you have with with Paul and the mission of the core collaborative as well. Yeah, because I'm an educator at my core. I'm a teacher. I've taught for a decade in the New York City Department of Education. I'm in urban education in Jamaica, Queens, Southside Jamaica. And I'm working with students. I've worked with students who for many, they were discarded, cast aside, not really thought of to be the geniuses that they are. So to be a part of a book that really acknowledges that, like you are genius, you are brilliant, what you bring, even your trauma. Mm -hmm. And you're not just trauma. That's the other thing. You're not, we don't need to paint this picture like everyone's from the hood and they're downtrodden. Okay, yeah. they may be from the hood and that might be true, but they're beautiful and brilliant too. Where's that part of it? You know? Yeah. And outside of scholars like Goldie Muhammad, I was not hearing that. I was not reading that. I still am not. 
Yeah. Yeah, there are, she's our hero for sure. And Gloria mm -hmm. Ladson Billings, I think that they were really paving the way. Yeah. But I think we started to recognize that the work that kind of, where we are most known for is our formative assessment work. Yeah. And I think even that work, we look back at it and say, you know, there's a lot of deficit thinking. And I know we haven't figured it all out. We say that very early on, but come on the journey with us. <laughs> we don't have all the answers, but I think there are ways to tweak what we're already doing to rethink it. Yeah. So we do exactly what Vivette says, is we look at the power and the beauty and the gifts that teachers, our community, and our kids bring and really get them to see that formative assessment is a time where you learn about yourself mm -hmm. deeply. And so that's why we're digging in deeper than we ever have before in this model, not just looking at yourself from an intellectual standpoint, but emotionally, socially, your identity, all of those things. And then, you know, how can you learn about others in that deep way through partnership, through peer assessment, through partnering with your teacher, through partnering with your community members. So it's not just about learning about yourself, it's about learning about others and honoring the gifts that others bring to the table. So I think it was just trying to figure out how to make what we already believed in um, more asset-based. Yeah, yeah. And what sort of response are you getting from people? Well, we've had kind of a bumpy road um, and getting um, the book out. Um, I think we're in a good shape right now, but with paper shortages and all of the things that are happening in the world and just the complexity of writing a book like this, I think what I know is the endorsements are glowing yeah. and they were people that I just wanted them to read the book and tell the truth, Yeah. right? And so I'm really happy to see the kinds of people that endorse the book. So I think that is, says a lot. I also think, you know, we have a lot of schools, I think 19 schools contributed to the book. So from my perspective, seeing the impact that it has on the teachers and on the kids and on the community is really all that I need. <laughs> Personally, is just seeing like if one person uh, made a shift as a result of learning this stuff together. That's good enough for me. I think the early indications are that it'll be really well received, but we're also living in a country right now where some places are banning anything like this. And we have states that are not allowing social emotional learning. And we have states that are banning African studies courses and um, even, you know, being yourself, like if I was in Florida, I couldn't show up to work as myself. Yeah. So I think we have to be honest. And I think this is happening globally. Yeah. Right. It's not just happening here. Mm -hmm. So I think there is resistance, but we decided to just be ourselves yeah. and to put this out and follow, you know, where it kind of leads us and guides us and to just try to be as like we're going to be presenting at Brigham Young University on Thursday. It's a Mormon 
university and Vivette and I were planning for it on Friday and we're just so grateful to have the platform to be ourselves. Yeah. So I think that, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what sales are and all that stuff is. I We didn't do it for that. It'll be great if if a lot of people get it, but I think we give it out for free, wouldn't we, Vivette? <laughs> Absolutely. I actually have shared a chapter of the book with my students. I teach pre-service English teachers at one of the state universities in New York. And so I asked them all to read it over spring break, that chapter, and just give me some feedback because the book is for them. They're the new frontier of educators. So I'm curious and interested and a bit nervous to hear what they have to say and how they interpret the chapter of the book that um, they read and what they think about culturally responsive assessments and education and having a, a culturally responsive, sustainable plan for assessing our students. Because again, that's not a class that they take along the road to becoming a teacher, although it should be in my opinion, it should be. This is the closest that they'll probably get. So I'm happy for the platform to be able to expose the 10 students that I have to it. And I think that's how this book will grow. Mm -hmm. It'll be a slow burn, but when it catches on, baby, watch (laughs) out. (laughs) <laughs> it's gonna be and let's be brut- brutally honest we had to rewrite the whole thing over the summer so we got we did a blind review yeah and the feedback was pretty good and we didn't believe it we're like no we need so we hired peer reviewers that had a deep deep knowledge of equity and culture resource, and we just said just rip it to pieces and they did and it didn't feel very good um at all because we rewrote the whole thing over this summer we created a conceptual framework as a result of that feedback that lives throughout the whole book that wasn't there and i really believe that it was the thing after we figured out what to do (laughs) like creating the framework created threads that moved through the book that we didn't have before And I'm just really grateful that people were so truthful with us. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's still things in there that are deficit minded because we're so programmed because we've all grown up in those, in that culture Mm -hmm. of what's wrong with us, you know? And so I think it's almost impossible sometimes, you know, you look through it and like, Oh, I wish we would have changed that. I wish we would have changed that. But I think it's a lot better as a result of the rewrite. Yeah. So I I guess the sense I'm getting is there is a book, but actually it's so much more than a book. A book is just a part of the the whole movement and the work that you're doing. It's it's just a moment in time almost. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think it I think it embodies everything that we're really about. Yeah. And what we really believe about humanity and what we really believe we have to do to move through the times that we're in and come out better on the other side. You know, and I think we can only we only have what's in our control. But, you know, she said she has 10 pre-service teachers. You know, that those are folks to make impact with. Just think about the ripple effect. And I think of the 
five or 600 schools that we partner with, yeah. right? I mean, those are the places that we can focus on. Those are the things we have within our control. We don't have within our control what the teachers think, what they do, but we can control what we do. And I think, yeah, it's way more than a book. It's trying to communicate out our beliefs. Our core beliefs and agreements from our company are even in the book. Yeah. And so like, <laughs> like, so I'm hoping that the heart part of it mm-hmm. is the part that I hope people remember. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they will. I think they will. And I think they will remember it from this conversation and from conversations like this as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. You've, you've touched it not on it already, but just, I guess, for clarity and for unpicking in a little bit more detail, you talk about reimagining formative assessment through asset-based cultural lens to make greater impact on learning and our shared humanity. It's quite a sentence. So what does it really mean? What does that mean in practice? What does that look like for, for a practitioner? I think, um, number one, it's about truth. Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, one of our core concepts is criticality, and that is looking at the world through a lens of the most marginalized. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we found that really hard, that particular concept to weave through the book. But I think it's also the skills and the dispositions you need to be critical of the world. Those are things that we can assess in through the content that we choose to have our kids engage in learning, you know, and teachers are sometimes in somewhat of control on that and sometimes not, but we can teach our kids through this to develop their ability to understand and honor different perspectives. And I think it's the listening piece that's also really crucial, the empathy part, that when I'm giving feedback to my friend Vivette, we're critical friends. Like, we've built a relationship that is anchored in our cultural identity. We can be real with one another about who we are, good, bad, and ugly, and we have. And because of that relationship, we can offer advice to one another that we might never be able to truly say because we haven't, because we haven't invested in that relationship. And I think we're finding in our schools right now, teachers that have been working alongside each other for 10, 20 years, we do some work around um, shallow, surface, shallow and deep culture, you know, at the onset of the learning and people recognize, wow, we have been working alongside each other for 10 and 15 years and we don't even know one another. Mm. on a human level so I think that this on that uh, uh, that's what this book is really all about and but that probably is a whole different takeaway than me Mm. that sentence that you read do you mind reading it again Sarah yeah yeah. so it's uh, reimagining formative assessment through an asset-based cultural lens to make a greater impact on learning and our shared humanity what that means to me is really asking the why. Why am I assessing my students? Mm-hmm. How am I assessing my students? And in answering those questions, am I honoring not only their cultures, 
but our humanity is it just a test to garner an arbitrary number am i looking to really what why am i assessing the students i think often the question is not asked we just do things in a very rote way or this is the way things have been done so we continue doing it blindly without seeing the harm that these assessments can cause Mm-hmm. And I think that's the real shift in this book. Not I think I know it is that lens of looking at really introspection as the educator addressing the power hierarchy. You have power. Have you taken the time to build any relational trust with the students that you are exacting your power on to assess? Are those questions that we are encouraged to ask ourselves as educators in a space where in the United States, most educators are white women, even in predominantly black and brown neighborhood school, community schools. So it's relevant to ask these questions. It's necessary to ask these questions. And I ask these questions as a Black woman who has taught in District 2 of Manhattan, which is a very diverse space, which is not predominantly, it's not like the students I taught in South Jamaica, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. I had to do some like, okay, what's the culture of this school? What's the culture of my students? That's so it's not just a one way lens. Like, I think it's always like, oh, well, how do we address the marginalized students? It's about our humanity because culture goes beyond race, goes beyond gender. It's what are we bringing? There's the culture of age. Like, am I aware of the music my students listen to? Do I understand their language when they're talking? You know, do I know who little baby is? Do I know like, or am I just putting it down? Like, oh, that hip hop or that like, no, because I'm not taking the time to get to know them. And I think when we think about it in a broader lens, it's important to assess them because, hey, I could be assessing my students in a way that is only going to show what they're not good at. And that's what's been happening. Am I being creative to say, well, I noticed that you're always making beats on the cafeteria table. So you seem to have an inclination towards music. Why don't I find a way to incorporate that in the way I assess you that's still rigorous, that still meets the bar? Because I think sometimes the notion is, oh, if I become culturally responsive, somehow I'm watering down the assessment. That is not true. If anything, you're beefing it up. You're ramping it up. And then you could really hone in on what do my students have? What do they need? And how can I take what I have in the je ne sais quoi that each teacher brings, right? That's part of our magic. And let's work together in this beautiful community of our classrooms. That's what it's supposed to be. Not getting your score from a test as a student and feeling like a piece of crap. Or feeling like my only worth is in that grade. Yeah. Because that's what I see. Kids are just about the grade. I don't even read the comment. Just the grade. What did I get? What's the grade? Parents are calling. Oh, what's the grade? Are they going to get into school? Like, slow down. Whoa, relax. Yeah. I was in a, learning? a relatively whatever we call in our country high performing school, usually people with a lot of privilege. Mm-hmm. 
But when I, it was like right after the pandemic and I was out in the hallway and these girls had missed a point on a test. Mm -hmm. And I have never seen such emotion that they were going to lose who they were, that like they were future tripping in ways where I'm like, what have we done mm. to give that much power to a score or to a point? And like, and when, when our mistakes are some of the greatest places that we can learn from. So in this book, it's more focusing more on what the learner believes is their strength than we're coming to consensus around that. And the strength doesn't, doesn't lie with the intellectual. It's also the habits of mind or the dispositions that they brought to that task or challenge. What dispositions did they activate? Which ones do they wish they would have activated? You know, how are we feeling during this challenge? And what are we gonna do and cope with those feelings because those feelings are real. So I think in this particular book, we're really just trying to speak to the whole learner. And mm -hmm. I think that that's um, very different than, I think it's always been kind of a thread, but I don't think it's been quite so pronounced. Mm -hmm. That was a good question. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good question. <laughs> you got us both riled up. And you know what else it does in this book that I love about Amplify Learner Voice is that there's space for the learner to assess themselves. Hmm. Your assessment does not always need to come from an entity outside of you. What do you think about your work, your assessment, about yourself in this learning space? That is crucial. How do they see themselves? Too often that is not asked. And or it's not valued. If it is asked, it's in, in a very perfunctory way. Where th in this book, it's asked in a way that really values, like I go back to relational trust, like building that trust where you trust me enough to assess you. What about that? How are you assessing being assessed? And they don't even trust you to assess them. Are we kidding? How is that fair? How is that right? It's not. It's not, and the weight of the assessment, there's so much weighing on it. No wonder those girls you talked about, Paul, were freaking out. We parents are spending $250,000, forging tests, doing, I mean, if that didn't show the nation, we need to reassess some things, guys. We've gone bonkers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, we lost it. We Somewhere yeah. along the line, we lost it, and we need to reel it back in. Yeah. yeah. You, you've you've talked I think you've both touched on it you know we have this kind of default to look at the deficit and what is it we are lacking and you talk there Paul about you know really identifying their strengths you know do we have the language for that how do we develop the language for that because our default is to go to oh but I need to do this or I need to work on that we certainly do not have the language for it like I I think I think that's why we brought so many authors together. I think Connie has really started, she wrote the chapter on inclusive questioning. I think she is really starting to figure out more about that language and what are some specific things we can do concretely with language. But for me, it was like going back to the dispositions. Yeah. And we were assuming when we were doing the habits of learning or learning dispositions that the kids didn't have them as they came into the classroom. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, that's just crazy. Mm -hmm. I was like thinking about my son, Alex, who 
really struggled. And a lot of my work has been really dedicated to both my sons, but him in particular was called lazy, a troublemaker, um, the racial slurs being called a beaner. Um, all these just terms that teachers, I think to some extent were the bigger, were bigger bullies for him in his life than actually the kids that he was working with. But I think it's even from the disposition piece to assume that the kids have the dispositions when they come into the class. Because if I would have saw, when you watch Alex surf, mm -hmm. he exhibits patience. He exhibits empathy. He always lets someone else catch the wave before him. He's not competition. He is a contributor, yeah. right? When you see him compose music, you can see him concentrate for hours on end, never get out of his seat. Yeah. Yet he was called lazy and boisterous and all of these other things. Mm -hmm. And if the teachers would assumed he was patient and if they would have assumed that he could contribute and if they would have assumed that he had empathy mm -hmm. on the front end, they would have treated him differently. They mm -hmm. would have honored him as a learner in a completely different way. So I think what we're really trying to do is flip it. So now in our chapter three, we're having the kids go home and interview their parents. Talk to me about a time that you persevered. Talk to me about a time that you demonstrated empathy. And we're asking them to bring that richness into the classroom because yeah. most of our teachers are white women. So they can start to see that regardless of our lived experience, they are resourceful, they are compassionate, they have empathy, they have all of those dispositions already. We just need to help them make connections to algebra class. How do I bring that to algebra? How do I bring that to where I'm struggling? So I think from the very beginning, we're trying to flip yeah. the switch and, and look deeply at the relationship between cultural identity and learner identity because if this, if we're not honoring our cultural identity, like I didn't, and I'm sure Vivette has felt that too, mm -hmm. like didn't honor who I really was, that has an impact on how we learn. Mm -hmm. So those things are one, you can't separate them. Yeah. And that was beautifully explained and beautifully identified in in that sort of example that you you gave there so I know that you in the book you talk about or you explore seven culturally culturally responsive concepts to shift practice and I suppose I'm interested to what extent are these shifts that you explore in the book are they individual are they organizational are they systemic are they a mixture of all of those yeah, happen? yeah. So I think that was the question after the blind review. So that's a really great question because I think the peer review, not the blind review, they basically said, you know, what are you really trying to say? Mm. So these are threads, they're interdependent. Yeah. But I would say that the cultural identity, when you look at the visual, it's larger mm -hmm. than the other ones, maybe not. And I'm, I think we did that visually just to show how important it is because we haven't really honored our own cultural identities and the cultural identities of our kids. So I think that is made larger, but they're all interdependent and they all work together. And the way we wrote the book is we have driving questions that are associated with those concepts at the beginning of each chapter. And then we end each chapter with the same 
um, we take those driving questions and then we come up with what we think might be the big ideas, although there could be more than for the reader, because we wanted to show that they're all connected and they're in play at all times. However, in the professional learning, we just um, got back from Alaska, which was such a beautiful experience. I had never been there. And when I talk to Alaskan educators, what is the number one thing that you'll need to do in your state to move forward? They said, until we reconcile with what the colonists did to our indigenous people, we will never be who we wanna be. Yeah. And so there we recognize that a core of the work that we did there, we started with really understanding our cultural identity. So I think, and honoring that, and how does that weave through the work? So I do think it takes a way more prominent role than the others because it really just hasn't. Yeah. Yeah. But that, do you kind of feel that they're interdependent and feel the same way, or do you feel different? They're interdependent. It really is how how do you want to incorporate these seven concepts? Mm-hmm. You can incorporate it in your classroom. You can, as an administrator, choose to incorporate it school-wide, district-wide. It's a system game changer if you allow it to be. It can be that, but a family is a system. So even if a homeschool family reads this book, they can change some things about how they're assessing. So it's up to the human being who's utilizing this book, how they choose to enact it really and truly. But it has the it has the potential to make seismic shifts in the way we perceive our students, assess our students, and really, it's at the core of how do we perceive ourselves. That's at the core of a lot of what's going on in education right now. There is a fear of seeing ourselves, our histories and wanting to block that from happening. And that is played out in the type of assessments that are given, you see that in Florida where a formative assessment has been blocked Mm. and been said that it is not relevant, it is not needed. What message is that sending to the students who were hoping to take that class, who had signed up to take that course and to engage in that assessment? You told them that what they value in their learning doesn't matter. That's yeah. dangerous. That's harmful. Yeah. Our book talks about that and really addresses why we need not do such things because it is very harmful. Yeah. And so is there is there an optimal starting point or is it very much contextual? You know, people can find their starting point depending on the they can find the starting point and I love that sorry Paul it's really cool because the book is really fat and when you look at it it might be intimidating but what I like is there are QR codes so maybe you just want to like watch a video about something maybe Mm -hmm. you just need to like get to a blog that's talking about something so it's like a textbook but you can read it like an easy reader because it's very much in layman's terms. And I like that about it. Because now I'm reading the book, not as a co-author, just as a reader, right? Like, okay, what is this book? Let me look at it from a different lens. And I'm very pleased and proud of the way that I can navigate it and look through things and say, oh, for my students, I think I want them to read this chapter or this aligns with this. So it's very beautiful in that way. What is it you need? Because we all may be 
struggling with different things. We may need different things at different points. So yeah. it's not like you have to start at chapter one and then go right through the chapter. No, if you need to dig in in chapter three, go for it. Start there. And it yeah. doesn't matter which way you go, you're going to get what you need. I personally am jumping around. Yeah. I feel, and see, I, I feel like you can definitely do that because we did the conceptual framework of the driving questions at each chapter. For me, I think when you go through chapter one, through three. So chapter one just kind of tells like, why are we rethinking this or reimagining it through the lens of culture? And then you have the, the, the chapter that Danielle and um, the vet wrote, and then moving into the dispositions. I think after those three, I find it really easy to move around them. But I think from a system perspective, we go in and see what are the things that we can honor that you do have in place and then how can we start with what you do have in place and just look at what you do have in place through another lens instead of even growing anything it's mm -hmm. acknowledging the value that the system already has for something that is working and then re-looking at it and refining it first before we start on adding on because right now sir i think you know that the idea of adding anything on, I mean, even Peter DeWitt speaks about it with the implementation, but Doug Reeves has spoken about it for decades, yes. right? The weeding of the garden, right? Yeah. That's what he called it, right? Or Schmoker called it focus. So, I mean, these conversations we've been having, so I think it's smarter to first look at what the system has in place and then re-look at it through this lens, through the lens of even maybe maybe just starting looking at it through cultural identity and asset-based mindset. And then I think each individual person is gonna find meaning in it in a different way. But that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. And I guess that aligns with it being asset-based as well in the sense of what have you already got and how can we improve that as opposed to you know, start from scratch. Yeah, yeah. I think that we've realized at the Core Collaborative that we use the formative assessment process within systems. Yeah. I mean, that's how we make improvement, right? Is acknowledging the things that you did well, what led to that success, because we have to be clear about the leading indicators. What are all the things that we can replicate? You know, as we move on to the next journey, instead of not taking any time and doing the appreciative inquiry that's needed so we can identify those leading indicators so we can apply them to our next step. And I think that's something that we see that systems need desperately because they don't talk about why they are successful relatively ever and what led to our success intellectually, socially, and emotionally. Because all of those things played a part in our success. And who are all the people that we brought with us on this journey, right? Because we belong to each other. Like, we didn't come here. Metasol, our restorative lead in the company, you know, she reminds us all the time that we didn't come to this space alone. You know, we came to this space with our ancestors and our problems and our trauma and all of those things that make us whole, 
And I think that those are the things that we're trying to acknowledge within this book. Yeah. We've spoken about listening throughout and you've given sort of different examples throughout, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, for those listening, um, how could they listen more to their students? Are there any kind of um, practices or habits that you can share that might help those that are listening to this conversation to listen more in their own settings? You want to go first with that or you want me? Yeah, um, we talk a lot about it in um, asking questions is the short answer to your question. Ask more questions. It's very much rooted in Freire's model of that's how we learn by asking questions and when you ask you ask more questions and listen to them as the authority of their own lived experiences too often we go in thinking we know and not willing to kind of take a different seat not even the back seat just take a different seat move over perhaps and allow the student to drive and ask questions make less assumptions and come in with a mindset of, I want to learn about you and where you come from and who you come from. So that really like, that's one of the things and it's easy to do, mm -hmm. ask questions, you know, and it speaks to, you know, all the research on funds of knowledge that students and their communities are coming to us with a lot of beautiful gifts that they can teach. They have their own knowledge. Now, do we value that knowledge? That's a separate conversation. Too often it's not valued. But if you ask questions and then you listen to the answer, some some really beautiful collaborative community building, that beloved community that Dr. King talks about begins to happen. Yeah. yeah. And I definitely am agree with like asking more questions and being more patient and being more open and not rushing. Like I think a friend of mine, Kim, and I know this quote comes from somewhere, I don't know where, um, but it was rushing is a form of violence. And I think that as we come back from this horrible thing that has plagued us, you know, we can go a million miles an hour and we're going to make all these same mistakes again or we can just really slow down and pay attention on the listening end. and I do this even with my husband and it's the hardest thing to listen to my husband and my family but I think for me it's reflecting back what other what someone says to me and I'm even to the point of my consulting that I'll do an hour I do a lot of zoom coaching now but sometimes my hour is only listening and I'm reflecting back and I'm validating how that person feels. Mm -hmm. And that is the only thing I do on that coaching call because I was realizing over the pandemic is like, I was jumping in with feedback and advice and I hadn't really, even a lot of the time in my coaching for listening. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm like, okay, I'm like listening for 45 minutes to an hour on these calls. And then we might come back and we review what we, what I heard. And then sometimes it even requires more listening because the problems that we're trying to solve are really complex. We can't solve them in a transactional way. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're complex because they connect to the root of our soul. 
And so I think this validating people's emotions, you know, not saying, not making a personal connection to your own life when someone is saying something, which is extremely hard, you know, because I think for me, I made connections because I wanted them to know that, hey, I see your point of view, not recognizing that making that connection could rob them of their dignity. And I didn't know that. And I'm kind of a person with a big mouth. So I think for me, it's the really practicing, reflective listening, validating people's emotions, and then really creating more time and space for that. And that even means in master schedules at schools. You know, these master schedules or schedules people have, they're all the same from school to school, regardless of the kids you're supporting. That's just crazy to me. Like, a school schedule should, you know, reflect their values and what they believe. And these 30, 45 minute periods and running around like, how who can learn like that? So for me, it's a lot more patience mm. too, slowing mm -hmm. things down. Yeah, and I, I recently recorded a conversation for the podcast with um, Oscar Trimboli, who has written a book called How to Listen. Um, and one of the things that he talks about is, you know, tuning your instruments for listening and actually how we prepare ourselves for listening. And, and that a lot of that is, is, as you mentioned earlier, Vivette, that kind of introspection of reflection on yourself in order to be ready to listen, in order to be open to listening as well. So there's probably lots of connections across those, yeah. those two. I'm going to buy that book now. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah good. What do you hope our listeners will take away from this conversation today? I think to recognize that we really do belong to each other and there's no way we can do this alone. And I think that's expressed with all these authors, contributors, and everybody that, you know, put their heart into this and took their time and their expertise and to recognize that we don't have to do this alone that this has, all of this work in education has to be done together because there is no one person that knows the answers. The answers are rooted deep inside all of us. And if we can come together and be truthful about what's really happening and honor one another's, you know, the knowledge that they bring, I think that we'll actually be able to solve the root cause of many of the issues that are actually holding us back from reaching our full potential. So for me, I think it goes back to this, you know, collaboration piece, authentic, real collaboration where we can show up as ourselves. Mm. What do you think, Vivette? I, I, you got to stall. <laughs> That's a tough one. I really hope that anyone who listens to this podcast and who comes across our book in whatever way that is to know that you were guided to this book for a reason and to really enter it with an open heart and an open mind perhaps in a way that you don't traditionally enter into a book about assessments and really read it not only with your mind but even more so with your heart and allow yourself to be open to changing the way you do things. 
growing the way you do things. I really hope that they, whoever reads this book will really walk away with that. And whoever hears this podcast, I hope you hear our authenticity. You hear our hearts, how genuinely we've poured our intellect and our heart set into this book and our desire to really create a change in the way that we approach particularly our students who have been most marginalized and whose voices have been most stomped on and recognize it is time to amplify our learners' voices. And the way to do that is through culturally responsive and sustaining assessments. That's one way. And there could be no better way to end this conversation. <laughs> um, no <kidding. laughs> You know, both of you there have given us a powerful message in terms of belonging and heart. And it's time to amplify, as you said, Vivette, our students' voices. Um, so a massive thank you for, from me for your time, not just today, but clearly for all the time and love and energy you've put into, into your work and will continue to put into your work as well. I think we all thank you for that. Well, thank you for giving us this platform and 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 really it, from the bottom of our hearts it's been a really tough three years so i'm really grateful for the time thank you for listening folks we really value you taking the time and space to join us and we hope that you take something positive from it we'd love to hear your reflections so please get involved via twitter or contact us directly by email. Thanks again, stay safe and take good care.